This is Lex Kibernetica, the cyber law podcast by the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Lex Kibernetica. One of the problems with cyber attacks and cyber operations is the accountability. Who's responsible for what was done? We're going to talk about the challenges and problems uh, with accountability. So let's talk about the definition, first of all, and then the uh, challenges with our next guest. Hi, um, I'm Yael Ronen. I'm professor of international law at the Academic Center for Science and Law at Hode Sharon, and I'm also a research associate at the Cyber Law Program of the Hebrew University in the Federman Cybersecurity Center. My research deals with a specific aspect of accountability for cyber operations, which is attribution, but accountability for cyber operations is a much wider concept that raises, as you said, a variety of challenges. Accountability is the notion that when an actor, any type of actor, carries out an unlawful act, and that act does not go with impunity, um, in the sense that there's some reaction from the society within which this actor works. If we're talking about international law, we will be dealing with accountability under international law towards the international community. And very often in the international scene, there's a problem with accountability. The law does not have a strong bite, and therefore states can carry out acts that are not lawful, and there might not be any type of legal sanction on them. And what challenges does this uh, concept bring with it? Okay, so if we're talking about accountability in general, then there's the basic legal components, and then there's the extra-legal element. The legal components would be, first of all, we have to establish that there had been a violation of the law. Then, and this is something that we're probably going to come to that is very significant in the context of cyber operations, but we have to attribute that unlawful conduct to a specific actor. And then we need to have some sort of mechanism that allows us to hold that actor accountable. If we're talking about law, we usually think of courts. Although we have many more courts today, courts and tribunals than we had in the past, we can't just take somebody or take state to court all that easily. Um, so the structural, the institutional mechanism for accountability is sometimes lacking. Beyond that, there's the question of politics. We don't always have the political power to hold the relevant actor accountable. And that's, that's very much a problem in international law, which is one of the reasons that very often people say that international law is much less significant um, than other branches of international relations. Because in practice, sometimes it's only declarative. You can say that somebody should be um, tried, but you can't effectively try that person or that state. You're right. Although I think that paradoxically, in international law, this is less of a problem than we think. Because if, if we're thinking of you know, domestic relations, if I think that somebody had wronged me, if I cannot take them to court and all I can say is, well, they did me wrong, but I'm helpless, then that kind of ends there and we say, oh, there's no accountability. What are we going to do? In international relations, there's accountability that is not strictly legal. Reputational costs are very important in international relations. And therefore, if we claim that a certain um, state is responsible for violating the law, even if we can't technically take it to court, just shaming it can be very, very significant because states want to maintain a strong, positive reputation. What are the international rules uh, in the uh, field of uh, cyber accountability? Okay, so this is really probably the most important challenge at this point. International law, like other branches of law, is premised on certain assumptions that cyber activities challenge. One is that we think of things in physical terms. When we talk about an attack, we usually think of a person being physically harmed or a property being physically harmed. When we're talking about a cyber attack, there could be kinetic harm, but not necessarily. And then the question is, well, was this an attack? Was this an unlawful act? 
So the fact that we're talking not about physical damage, but about other types of damage, this is one challenge. A second challenge is that international law assumes that the world is divided into states, both territorially and functionally. This has been changing for a while now, you know, the understanding that states might not be the most important actors, and definitely they're not the only actors in, in international law that we need to take into account. And again, cyber operations challenge that first because they very easily cross borders. So territorial division of the world is not a significant barrier um, in the sense that a state would not easily move its military forces beyond its boundaries. Sometimes it would, but definitely not easily. Carrying out cyber operations that have some sort of element that is extraterritorial is super easy. Another side of it is that cyber operations are carried out very often not by states. Um, the immediate actors would be private entities. It could be individuals, it could be corporations, and whether they are related to a state or not um, is a separate question. So the entire system that is built on, we know what a violation of the law is, and we know how to identify the violator, and we know where legitimate conduct within a state begins and where it ends, all these things are undermined by the character of cyber operations. So how does international law deal with those uh, big uh, challenges? Well, it's debating them. There's two types of debates. One is, how would we define a violation of international law? And I think a lot of it, until recently, revolved around the notion of attack, because clearly cyber or any other kind of attack is what we perceive as the worst violation of the law. And it's, it's the use of force. Maybe the force is not kinetic, but but that's the worst violation. So how do we recognize a cyber attack? Do we require that um, its consequences would be the same as a kinetic attack? And, and that doesn't happen very often. There's one very significant example, and that is the sextant. What happened with Saxnet is a cyber operation resulted ultimately in centrifuges going berserk. So there was there was physical damage, um, and and this could be classified as a cyber attack. And we're going to see more and more cyber attacks like these in the coming years with infrastructure that is uh, connected to the web, with uh, smart homes and smart uh, devices, Internet of Things. We could. Um, I mean, technologically, it's going to be possible more and more. I assume. Um, but I'm not sure that this is, if we're talking not in terms of individual um, um, criminals harming other individuals, if you're talking in terms of international relations between states, I'm not sure that physical attacks is necessarily where we're going to, because I think states might have an interest in other less overt damage. In midway, we would say, what do we do when the electric grid of a state is harmed? There's no physical damage, but it doesn't operate. How would we define this also as an attack with the, with the laws that apply with it? What do we do when banks cannot operate? What do we do when there's an attack that causes a state to shut down its banking system so it doesn't get damaged? I mean, clearly no physical damage was caused. And in fact, in some cases you would say, well, no damage was caused at all because we prevented it. But does that mean that the action that caused it There's nothing illegal about it. Somehow, intuitively, we feel that we can't just dismiss it at that, um, which is why there's more and more interest today in discussing not only the notion of cyber attack, but other cyber operations um, that cause some harm to other actors. And I think one of the things that has been very prominent um, in the media was intervention 
in um, elections or intervention in the administration of other countries. There's absolutely nothing physical about it. Um, there's not, nothing even infrastructural in any way. It's just an impact on society. Um, and this is much harder to define as unlawful. Uh, but today we speak a lot, not only of attacks, but also of, of intervention and of violation of state sovereignty. Uh, now, it's it's interesting that on the one hand, state sovereignty is one of the fundamental principles of international law. I mean, this is what it's all based on, that we are divided into states and we have sovereignty and we cannot violate each other's sovereignty. But now we find ourselves dealing with the question of what exactly is that sovereignty that may not be violated? Now, given that there's international interaction, what is permitted and probably desirable, we want to have international interaction. But at one point, do we say, no, excuse me, that's more than you can do. We want to have conversation, but you cannot use social media in a way that affects political power relations in another country. That's already an intervention which is unlawful. So th there are no clear answers to these questions. It's all being debated. Well, we might reach consensus on some of these issues. I doubt that it will be very quick because these questions raise fundamental issues of how do we see the role of the state vis-a-vis -vis individuals? How do we see as appropriate relations between states? And different states have very different conceptions on this. But I assume we will also see different types of activity that we would find ourselves thinking about how to regulate. Although, you know, intervention in elections is not an entirely new phenomenon. It's just that the ability to do it through cyberspace gives it a much bigger volume that things that were covert and not very significant suddenly become center stage. Because their effect is very big, because they can uh, reach uh, a lot of people and, and cause a lot of damage. Right. And I think that's true for a lot of aspects of cyber operations, that maybe they only do more of the same that has been done earlier, but the quantitative growth gives it a different qualitative um, quality. Professor Yael Ronen, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Attribution is hard. States wish to find the assailant, the guilty party, the guilty state. And it's not only a cybersecurity challenge, it's also a political one. One of the ways to deal with the political hardships of attributing um, cyber attacks to states is collective attribution. And we'll talk about that with our next guest. Hello, my name is Isabella Brunner, and I'm a researcher and assistant lecturer in public international law at the University of Vienna. My research focuses on attribution um, or state responsibility issues with respect to cyber operations. So um, evidentiary standards, how states um, attribute the operation to another state and um, what are the rules of international law relating to that. And prior to my work at the university, I worked at the Austrian Foreign Ministry focusing on sanctions and cyber issues. Can you define collective attribution? Attribution meaning that you're condemning the acts of a specific actor, be it a state actor or a non-state actor, that had um, conducted a malicious cyber operation against another state. Collective attribution is basically just attribution made by several states together. When did collective attribution start? What were the first uh, cases? I'm not exactly sure what was the first case. With Estonia in 2007, it was definitely not the case. But WannaCry and NotPetya in 2017, around they, they were definitely incidents that um, called for collective action. 
And then we've seen much more increased attribution, such as was the case with the OPCW hack, um, where the Netherlands and the UK were quite quick to blame Russia. And then you had the Georgian incident now, where Georgia was actually victim of a cyber attack in October 2019. And the United States, the United Kingdom, the European Union, and several other states came forward and said that uh, Russia was behind that operation. So that is a classical collective attribution, you could say. So I think there's definitely an increased trend um, to attribute collectively. What are the advantages of uh, collective attribution for those countries? States tend to say that it's deterring other cyber activities because you have much more political weight if you act together. Then you also are more credible. Yeah, political weight and credibility are these two issues that I think are much of an advantage. But on the other hand, when countries join together to single out one country that's uh, responsible for cyber attacks... Uh, isn't that um, more uh, politically motivated or uh, at least perceived as such? Yeah, that is definitely true, especially given the fact that when you see these collective attributions or the statements made by those states that undertake this attribution, you usually do not have any evidence being provided. So they are just saying, okay, so we believe that this state did it and we believe it with a very high probability, but we cannot give you any evidence on that. Um, I think states have become a bit better when it comes to that. They've improved this. For example, in the recent Georgian incident, they, especially the United Kingdom, provided some further information why they believe that um, Russia was behind that operation. So I think uh, states are becoming more concerned about it. But it's definitely one of the challenges that you have with collective attribution. What does collective attribution look like from the inside, from within the authorities that are uh, responsible for it? Well, um, every single state, of course, um, deals with the issue in a different manner. And, you know, you tend to have intelligence agencies within a state. You tend to have, you also have the foreign ministries, you have heads of state, etc. And I think and in many countries, you have a very, it's a coordinated approach. So you tend to have different agencies coming together and looking at the problems together, especially because cyber attacks, um, they touch upon many different areas, uh, such as diplomacy, but also the question of who is behind it needs to be solved with, of course, certain intelligence or, or private sectors or government certs and stuff like that. Is it more political move than a cybersecurity move, in, in a sense? It's, it's a very difficult question. I think it's perhaps even more, yeah, a political signal, because cybersecurity, that's something that states tend to do on the side as well. I mean, they're trying to enhance their capabilities, but actually undertaking the attribution is, of course, um, a political signal because you're saying to other states, you do not tolerate specific behavior. We had an incident in Austria, in fact, in January 2020, where Austria was the target of a severe cyber operation. And I think that was quite interesting because they said in the media that they um, were targeted of a severe um, cyber attack and that there is a possibility that a state could be behind the operation, but then they refrained from saying anything further. And I think that was quite interesting because um, Austria is a smaller state and I'm, I'm sure that they would have specific information if they can go out there and say that perhaps a state actor was behind it, but they refrained from doing so because that could have political implications. But maybe they are coming forward uh, later, who knows, but so far they have not said um, revealed a statement about that. 
from uh, what we've seen in collective attribution, does it look politically motivated? Does it look like the same countries are on the same sides most of the time? Yeah, sure, definitely. I mean, you always have, or you usually have the United States, United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, Canada on one side. And uh, usually it's the same suspects on the other side. So North Korea, China, Russia, it's definitely a geopolitical issue, I think. Does this method seem effective or is it uh, perceived as a political power move uh, and, and uh, not much more? Given the fact that um, cyber operations are still going on and it's very easy to hide your trails in cyberspace, I'm not entirely sure that just given the fact that you have collective attributions that these cyber operations will cease to exist. Um, I think they will just become much more um, advanced and definitely not, I don't think that they're going to stop. Um, I think it's definitely more of a political signal that certain activity is not tolerated. But I'm not convinced that these signals will actually lead to states not acting the way they do. I think maybe states will improve with their capabilities of hiding their trails rather than actually stopping the incidents. Isabella Brunner, thank you very much. You're welcome. Accountability is important when we look at state actors or proxy hacker groups who initiate cyber attacks. But the future has more interesting things in store, like enhanced humans. And accountability then becomes slightly more complicated because the accountability is shared between the human, the programmer, and the software and hardware. We're diving into this uh, fascinating uh, aspect with our next guest. My name is Roger Bartels, or Roger in international settings. I'm an international criminal lawyer who started off as an international humanitarian lawyer. I work in practice, but I do academia on the site. Um, and in that capacity, I'm a researcher at the University of Amsterdam, but also a research fellow at the Cybersecurity Center of the Hebrew University. And in that context, I'm looking into liability and accountability issues related to a very specific part of future technology, uh, not just cyber, but specifically military human enhancement. Let's start with the criminal law. What are the challenges in making one accountable for their cyber actions in international criminal law? One of the main challenges with law generally, but specifically criminal law that one faces is that law is basically always one step behind. Something needs to happen before parliaments can decide to adopt a law in order to address the matter. And then only later on, of course, you can achieve criminal accountability because the principle of legality requires that the law is in place prior to it being uh, broken. And on the international level, that requires states for that reason to come together and to adopt laws that are applicable to a specific situation. The Laws have been agreed upon uh, in relation to warfare, uh, to the conduct of uh, how states have to treat each other, uh, how individuals of states have to deal with each other. But these are mostly 50, 60, 70 years old, predating the, the cyber era. And there have been initiatives looking, for example, at uh, to what extent uh, the rules of international humanitarian law, the laws of armed conflict, are applicable to cyber warfare. And they've said, like, well, basically, we can bring all cyber actions under existing humanitarian law. But there's a lot of tension because there are new things that were not foreseen at the time. Very known criminal cases, for example, in my own country, there's a, a known case which deals with the principle of legality 
And it's called, if I translated, the electricity case, which addressed the question whether the theft of electricity or the, the illegally tapping electricity could qualify as theft. Because it's not tangible. Exactly. So this was the question. Is this a non-tangible thing? Can it qualify as a good, which was the or property, so to say, which was an element of the, the crime. And it's even more complicated uh, online where a lot of the things that you may steal are actually data that can be duplicated. So you're not actually removing the good. Exactly. And also, even if you erase something, is that then, you know, it, you'd erase ones and zeros. Would that qualify? We take it into the international setting of uh, destruction destruction of property, for example, which is prohibited in times of war. It's a war crime, but yeah, would you, the wiping someone's hard drive is that destruction of property. And these things on the national level, so the Dutch Supreme Court found that you could actually steal electricity as a good, even though it was a civil law country with a positivist approach, they found, yes, it is possible because you deprive someone of something of value. But some 20 years before, the German Supreme Court, or at least the then version of the Supreme Court, had decided that it was not possible. The law had to first be changed uh, on an exactly the same case because they said, like, well, electricity is not a movable good, so it's not eligible to be stolen. And these two different findings illustrate the challenges that you would have on any cases that relate to cyber warfare. If you look at cybercrime at the moment, uh, yeah, states are struggling to update their regulation to make sure that cybercrime can be prosecuted properly on the domestic level. But on the domestic level, states can actually uh, update their legislation in a relatively quick manner. Uh, parliament has to come together to agree to it. And um, while well, the law has to be proposed, it can be done in a relatively short time frame. On the international level, that requires agreement between states, treaties to be signed, later ratified, implemented on the domestic level, and especially the current international <laughs> for the atmosphere is not such that states are very agreeable to come together and come to one uh, common outcome. So the law is basically running behind. And this is what I started off with. The law is generally at least one step behind. And here on the international level, the law just hasn't caught up yet, which means that in terms of accountability, holding someone accountable is it's a challenge. Uh, the principle of legality requires that it was clear that the conduct was criminal at the time. And yeah, that will require a lot of explaining and a lot of clarification. And how do uh, researchers and lawmakers solving this, uh, this problem, this issue? Well, one, you'll have to identify the potential problems, of course, first. Ideally, uh, they'll be identified sooner than later in order to then allow states, uh, the lawmakers on the international level, to come together and to ensure that the law is sufficiently updated, the treaty uh, law, or that states will uh, there will be state practice and an agreement between states, opinio juris, which would then lead to customary law, which can be a sufficient basis to fulfill the legality requirement for uh, international prosecutions. But this first requires sufficient clarity. In terms of cyber warfare, there have been groups of experts coming together and, and writing manuals that provide some of this clarity. The reason, though, that these were experts, um, academics, persons who in their personal capacity 
participated was because states just haven't been able to do this and to come up with a treaty. So for cyber warfare, experts have been looking into it in lieu of states being able to agree on any potential new treaties. So they've attempted to provide this clarification. Courts have not really had a chance or a need to provide this clarification because there just haven't been any cases that address these matters. There have been on the international level definitely issues that relate to the cyber security sphere, uh, alleged cyber attacks, but those have not been brought at least before international courts. So they haven't had a chance to, to look into this. But this is just cyber warfare is one aspect that many modern technologies challenge uh, the existing frameworks that we have including the international criminal law framework and uh, one the project that i'm specifically looking into military human enhancement is is one of these areas where a lot of framing and clarifying is needed but also to identifying the potential problems before you can even address them of course so the problems would probably be when an enhanced human does something is the human accountable is the software accountable? Is the person who wrote the software accountable? Who's to blame or who's responsible for what was done? Yes. And of course, there, there are many different levels of, of enhancement possible. And because this is only in the development stage at the moment, um, it's, it will require a, uh, splitting it out and there will be versions of enhancement where it should be clear that uh, the human remains in control, but um, there may be versions of a, um, like a, a cybernetically enhanced human who may lose the kind of control in order to, to possess the mens rea required for um, the mental element that is required to be held accountable for alleged criminal conduct. Do you mean giving up autonomy? Or the fact that you have a power that you don't yet yield and you're not used to and you don't know how to operate and you did damage without meaning to because you had no experience with that feature. Well, the latter is, of course, more similar to what can happen now as well. If someone's operating a weapon that he or she is not used to or a weapon system and accidentally launches a missile, uh, for example, but... No, I mean more the, the, the former, so the, the situation where indeed um, there's a synergy between like a machine, basically, or a computer and, and someone's brain. And in certain situations, the human may be carrying the weapon, but if it's about quick reaction, the machine may have already kind of reacted prior to the human having given it sufficient thought to have done something intentionally. And there's versions where you can think of where the... Um, Third person's commanders, for example, or people in operation centers uh, may be uh, watching along via drone or via imagery, which is like a camera on the helmet of a soldier, but through, let's say, electrodes are also able to control certain movements of the, of the soldier. And imagine a situation where someone else can override his decision not to pull the trigger or the other way around to pull the trigger. There may be versions where the human has lost some of his or her um, ability to take decisions in such a way that you can help, can hold that person accountable for his or her own conduct. Where do you look for answers when you try to establish a system to attribute and to um, hold accountable an enhanced person? 
Well, on the one hand, of course, it's common that you look at, uh, all right, what, what's the current framework, where are potential gaps, uh, which means first identifying what um, issues are not in line with the current situation. In what way would a enhanced human differ from a, a standard accused person or suspect? And then, of course, it's important to take into account that this technology is it's being developed. It's not here yet. And changes, and there have been quite some changes in the last, let's say, 30 years in uh, international criminal law. So if this is something that only is going to materialize in 20 years time, does it really make sense to look at our current system? Or should we rather only look at the way international criminal responsibility, modes of liability on the international level, how they developed in order to see in what way can they maybe develop in the future? So one thing I think is important with these future um, technologies is, is not to rigidly look at what we have now, but rather how can we make sure that by the time this will be applicable, we have a system that can actually address the potentially criminal conduct that, uh, that may arise as a result of these modern technologies. Inevitably, then you just, uh, you'll still have to look at what we have now and see what options are there. And when it comes to specifically military human enhancement, there's a lot written and researched about current modes of liability, ways to hold people accountable on the international domestic level or allegedly um, criminal conduct. And then there's a lot already looked into on the ethical level, but also on the legal level, uh, legal research. For, for example, autonomous weapons or uh, robots. And those would be kind of the top and the bottom of the spectrum and somewhere in between in different versions closer to a regular human and closer to maybe a robot or autonomous weapon would be the enhanced human, um, sometimes closer to it being an autonomous weapon, sometimes closer to it being just a regular human being how you'll find them now on the battlefield. So yeah, those two aspects, the autonomous weapon research and the current system would be the, the barriers kind of between which uh, it makes sense to look. What are your answers or what are your suggestions rather? Um, well, answers, I <laughs> <laughs> what I think it's important and what I'll be looking into is at this point in time address the process that will lead to the coming into existence of these enhanced humans for military purposes, so enhanced soldiers, which means addressing the development stage, seeing if there should, for example, be codes of conduct for medical doctors who will be part of the development uh, in the same way how there are these kind of code of conduct in dealing with genetic modification of humans. So the production line, whether there can be in accountability there, but also already a legal framework set in place that would restrict the ways in which this technology will develop, for example, to ensure that the enhancement doesn't uh, interfere with that person's human rights. For example, the person would be captured in a war situation, but he has become or she has become one with the weapon. How can any enemy uh, <laughs> make sure that this person is uh, uh, separated from the weapon without this causing irreparable damage to the human? Um, because obviously and understandably, any enemy would want to ensure that someone in captivity doesn't have the weapon kind of attached to him or her. So yeah, these are also things that need to be taken into account. Not only what damage the uh, persons can do and to what extent these persons can act in accordance with the uh, applicable legal framework, so international humanitarian law, 
human rights law, but also to what extent the rights of these um, enhanced humans can be safeguarded. And that's very much in the development stage that it may be possible to, to regulate this. When you're talking about enhanced humans, this is not strictly a military problem because we will see human enhancement in our daily lives. We already are, and it's going to be all around us. Exactly. And this will have many very positive outcomes for many persons. For example, the exoskeletons, which are already um, being produced, which allow people who are paralyzed to walk again. And the transmission from the brain directly to uh, machine functions that are being used to perform very complicated surgeries. So there are civil uses of these technologies as well, which makes it all the more difficult to specifically regulate the military applications. And I think for that reason, it makes sense to try to keep it manageable, to focus research on those forms of enhancement, which are really for military purposes. Uh, where I was talking about, for example, the integration almost uh, of the synergy between a human and a weapon, because some other forms will be developed for civilian purposes, and then they could be applied in combat. But then, of course, the regulating system is very different. Also, what I said, there's so many different forms, and even when you think about uh, there's law enforcement, which is subject to a different body of laws than for military purposes, I was also recently told that I should update my examples. I was referring to, for example, RoboCop, but um, the <laughs> friend said, well, no, surely nowadays um, you should refer to uh, Iron Man as uh, an example of an enhanced human, <laughs> uh, which is indeed maybe a more up-to-date uh, <laughs> example. But th these are, of course, extreme versions of something that... Uh, is being looked into and there's more moderate versions of uh, enhanced human which soon could already be used on the battlefield. Hochir Bartels, thank you so much. You're very welcome. This was Lex Kibernetica. Lex Kibernetica. More episodes are available at the Hebrew University Cybersecurity Research Center site at csrcl.huji.ac.il.